Lord willing, we will do an entire chapter, which rarely happens in our study of Genesis. I do suspect we'll get more of that the farther we get in, into the book. Uh, but nevertheless, Genesis chapter 13. Uh, let's read the, the whole chapter. Um, by the way, as you, as, as you turn there, um, while I was running the other day, my mind just goes wild whenever I, I run. And uh, so I think we will title Genesis 12 to 50, uh, Keeping Up with the Patriarchs. That's what we'll title it. And then we will title chapter 13 as This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Two of Us. So Abram and Lot separate. You do with that whatever you want. That is just my mind. If Mark's not going to be here, someone's got to take his spot. All right. So uh, Genesis 13, we'll start in verse 1. Um, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to a place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes, saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley, and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Well, um, I suspect we are familiar with this story. But this chapter and the following chapters serve as a sort of unit climaxing in the destruction of Sagamore. After that, Lot's narrative largely um, empties the, the scene. I was thinking today that um, I have a habit that if I watch a, a movie or a TV show based off of a book and I really like it, I didn't have to read the book. Uh, a good example of that is my wife and I watched the uh, uh, John Adams HBO series last year, right right at the heart of COVID when we weren't going nowhere. Um, and I loved it. And I then went to read the book and it probably stands in my favorite presidential biography. I've read a couple dozen of them. Certainly stands up or near, if not at the top. Um, and I'm actually doing that now. Uh, in fact, the only Stephen King, no I've been trying to read more popular novels so I can figure out what's wrong with us. And uh, um, the only Stephen King novels I've ever read, I first watched the movie or the TV show and and whatnot. I'm actually reading one right now uh, because of that. Um, and the challenge of any filmmaker is to take the book or the comic book, if you want to, 
and to translate it onto film. Those are two very different mediums. And inevitably, whenever a movie or, or a series comes out, there's the critics. You know, what did they change from the book? Was it good? Was it bad? Um, one good example of this is comes from uh, my favorite movie trilogy, and that's, of course, Lord of the Rings. In the third movie, the third book, um, uh, Sam and Frodo are marching towards Mount Doom. And before they, they come to uh, Mount Doom and, and all of that, Mordor, uh, in the movie, Gollum, the little creature Gollum, um, gets in between Frodo and Sam, who are best friends. So much so that Frodo, who is almost surrendering to the power of the ring, um, gets rid of Sam, tells him to go home. He's not welcome here. It's a really dramatic scene in the movie. The problem is that's not in the book. For Tolkien, um, Samwise and Frodo, the only thing that, that really sustained Frodo, his, his effort to destroy the ring, was his friendship with Samwise. Remember that Tolkien had fought in the First World War, was a professor during the Second World War. Many of his students had, had died in that Second War. He lost almost all of his friends in the First War. And to him, friendship in the trenches was immutable. Nothing could come between two friends. And if you know Tolkien's biography, his friendship with Bart Owen and uh, C.S. Lewis and others and the Inklings was very, very close. Well, translate that to uh, the early 21st century with Peter Jackson. He is wanting to, to emphasize uh, uh, the, the depth of, of travail that, um, that Frodo was going through. So he's wanting to emphasize that there is indeed something that can come between friends. And so there's people who don't like the movies because of something like that. And there are those who appreciate what it is that Jackson is trying to do. And actually, when you think about it, both are right, aren't they? In many ways, there shouldn't be anything that really separates friends. At the same time, uh, we live in such a broken world, anything can separate us. Friends, family, everything else. So what we have here in this text is, is family members. We can almost say that Abram is the adoptive father of Lot. Remember that it was Lot's father who, who, who died, and Abram essentially brings him in. And being that Abram is without an heir, it's very likely that Lot would receive the Lot of, of Abraham's property, right? So, so this is a very close uh, friendship. It's a close family connection. They've been through a lot together. But yet, despite all of that, they are at the point of division. Well, in uh, verses 1 through 13, uh, they, they agree to uh, separate. Don, I may need you to do your... I know today's your day off. But you know how you, you, that one button and then it works fine. You'll get your steps in today just, just by me not, doing, uh, not having this ready beforehand. The battery works. No big deal. I don't have a whole lot up here anyways. So. All right. Well, it, it's no big deal. But we, we start with Abram and Lot separating here. Now, there we are. Thank you. I like it working out. Good, good, good. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, behind the secretary, the sound guy, the most important person in a church. Um, so you put them up here, deacon somewhere down here, and then... The choir, obviously, up here. I'm going to cover my basis. All right, so notice verse 1. 
Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with them into the Negev. Now, this is a transition. This is what connects chapter 12 with chapter 13. He's left Egypt where he should have never gone before. We, we get a hint later on in the narrative why he went there, but we know he went there because of the famine, right? There's a famine in Canaan, very common. Um, from what we can tell uh, historically and archaeologically, there's about a 300 years of, of, of famine cycles uh, that Abram finds himself in the middle of. So, so no wonder then he, he goes to, to Egypt. Um, and there, remember, he, he essentially violates the covenant. All aspects of the covenant, he violates there, right? He, he hands his wife over, right? So, and he's got to have his wife to have the son. He gives up the land, right, you know, to, to go to Egypt. I mean, he just surrenders all of it just to go to Egypt because of the famine. Um, and in fact, the, the writer, after the covenant in the first few verses of Genesis 12, goes out of his way to say, you need to see that this guy that God chose was not a good guy. Right? We've talked about how he was the worshiper of, of, of idols. Joshua tells us that. But right after God chooses him for his covenantal promises, Abram then goes and does a lot of bad things. And, and the writer wants us to see Abram sort of in that negative light. And then you come to chapter 13. At a broad level, Abram is still in a bad light because Abram is going to separate himself from family. Now, when you get into the text, it, what we see is Abram's actually the good guy in this chapter. But just broadly speaking, he, he, he looks kind of in a, a negative light. Now, you see there in verse 1, he goes to the, the, the Negev. Uh, what's interesting is, you remember in Genesis 12, God gives him the land and he goes to like three or four places, builds an altar, has a worship service, all that sort of stuff. He almost retraces his steps backwards. So the Negev was where he settled before going to Egypt. And now having come out of Egypt, uh, he starts in Negev. So you'll see that in chapter 12, verse 9, where he ends in Negev. And now he's starting back in Negev. So uh, you see Negev, Bethel, and Ai all mentioned in chapter 12 when he was on his little tour. Um, now, now we see in verse 2 the, the division. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Now, this is in many ways uh, the center of the division. At least it's introduced here. That's the issue of wealth. Now, remember, God promised Abraham that he would bless him. And in this case, that included but did not primarily mean wealth. Now, God has blessed a lot of people with wealth. There's a lot of people God's blessed. He didn't bless them in this specific way. Now, the blessings of Abraham were not about wealth. It just so happens that this was that God did bless him with wealth. Now, you remember, where did Abram get all of his wealth or much of it? He got it from the Egyptians. Now, notice here it's described as gold, silver, and land. Remember what we said last week, that the, the story of, of Abram in Egypt parallels the story of the Israelites in Egypt. Pharaoh is unnamed. Sarai is taken into a sort of bondage under Pharaoh, much as the Israelites are. Uh, they, they are sent away by Pharaoh. And when they're sent away, they are enriched by the Egyptians. Well, guess what they are enriched with? Gold, silver, and livestock. For example, in... Um, oh, oh, we'll come to that. Um, uh, Exodus 3.22. Let me just skip ahead. Uh, each woman shall ask of her neighbor... And any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry. I never can say that word. It's jewelry, like you do at a court. 
and for clothing. Now, you remember why this is important. Later on in the Exodus story, they built a golden calf out of the blessings and the spoils of Egypt. So they turned the gift of God into a false idol. If only I could think of examples like that in the United States of America. If only I could think of one, but I just, just can't think of one. Uh, Exodus 20, our livestock must also go with us, right? And, and later we, we, they complain, why did you bring us out to the wilderness so that we can't even give our livestock water? Where did that livestock come from? They're slaves. It comes from the Egyptians. So the three things that Abram gets from, from the Egyptians in Genesis 12 and 13, the Israelites will get later in the book of Exodus. Well, what's interesting in verse 2 is this word rich. What if I told you there is not a Hebrew word for rich? Isn't that weird? There's not one. This word is, has multiple meanings. One would be honor. Right? Uh, but the main one for us here is the, is the word heavy. The word means heavy. Sometimes it means honor. You think honor is, 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 is a sort of weight you know, that, that is placed upon you, that you, you carried it, right? So you, you've been honored. You do see that a lot. You, you give God honor. You give him weight. It's the weight of glory, C.S. Lewis. Probably his most famous sermon, his essay, Weight of Glory, whole book named after him. But in this sense, riches means weight. In the Hebrew mind, wealth was a weight, I'm reading a biography. I'm, I'm afraid to tell you it's of a rock star from the 70s and 80s, and I'll just leave it there. If you want to know, I'll tell you the service. Um, and there's a quote in there. It says, uh, when this person, when they started out as a band, they really struggled. And so unlike a lot of the, the rock bands in the 70s and 80s, they didn't just shoot up into fame. They eventually got there. Um, and so they understood just what the business was like. So what a lot of bands do is that they hit fame with that first single, and they, and they can't handle it. And what they end up doing is they stop living with normal folks, what the quote said. They stop, they stop being around normal folk. And it had this. They eventually had to buy people. There's a line in there. That just stuck out to me. And so because of their wealth, they're pulled out of normal society. And so the people around them are part of their music industry, basically. If you're a rock star, you've got to have makeup artists and photographers and videographers and record label execs and people running your sound and your managers and your lawyers and all this sort of stuff to the point where you're essentially buying people to have around you. So, so you get all this success, but you end up losing a whole lot. That's weight. That is the weight of wealth. Let me see if I can prove it to you from the Bible. Uh, I looked at all these examples, and, and here's just a, some from Genesis and Exodus. The Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. Their sin is very heavy. It's the same word used here for, for riches. Genesis 48, uh, that of course is Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, 48, now the eyes of Israel were dim with age. It's Jacob. Uh, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near to him and he kissed him and embraced him. Notice dim there is very heavy with age. Uh, Exodus 5, 9, let heavier work. And this is Pharaoh, be laid on men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Uh, so it's not rich work, it's heavy work, right? But, but that, that idea of heaviness is, is applied to riches. Exodus 8, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. His heart became heavy, became like a stone, right? And you think about all of our great myths, right? When you get turned into stone, you're hardened. This is Narnia, right? When, when the witch... Um, turns everyone in the stone. 
Y'all need to read more Tolkien and Lewis. At least they're fiction. And I would add the uh, space trilogy of Lewis to, to that as, as well. So, so, so this is it. They're, they're very rich. Verse 3, And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, Bethel means house of God, uh, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. Ai, of course, will come up in the story of, of Joshua. Um, and again, this, this reverses the pattern we saw in chapter 12. Verse 4 says, To the place where he had made an altar at the first, there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Uh, and then we get the division starting in verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions was so great that they could not dwell together. You see it there. This town is, is, is not big enough for the two of us. Like, literally, it wasn't big enough for the two of them. Now, there's a lot going on here. Um, first of all, notice Lot is mentioned. Um, we assume he went down to Egypt with Abram. He's never mentioned in the narrative. So far, Lot has only been mentioned as the uh, son of the deceased brother of Abram. And we've been told Lot is with him. All of that was to set up the next few chapters of, of narrative. I think it's through chapter 18, roughly, you get all the Lot stuff. Um, but nevertheless, Lot is wealthy himself, presumably from Egypt, but, but we, we can't really know for sure. Um, but what separates these two men is not jealousy. They're both wealthy. So they're, they're not trying to keep up with the Joneses here. That, that's not the issue. The issue seems to be um, um, affluence. That because they're so wealthy... It is causing conflict between their entourages. Their households would be a more biblical term. Um, I meant to put a picture up here of them, but uh, I am wearing right now my Puma running shoes. I can't hardly run in them now. They're pretty worn down, but they're Puma. Um, the hat I was wearing coming in here is of my favorite soccer team. They are sponsored by Adidas, as well as my favorite basketball team, the Louisville Cardinals. So my mask is... Right? And then they're sponsored by Adidas, which is better than Nike any day of the week. Now, Adidas is the way we say it in, in America because we're weird. It actually is Adidas because it's German. The guy's name is Adidas something. It's German. I, you just stop at Adidas. It's good enough. Do you know the story about Puma and Adidas? Do you know their story? The story started way back when um, they were brothers. The two guys that started Adidas and Puma, they were brothers. And they started a shoe company. And their shoe company really took off out of Germany when they sponsored the shoes of Jesse Owens when he uh, won the, the Olympics. And you know the story of Jesse Owens. He was wearing their shoes, went by a different name. I can't pronounce. They're German. Okay. Well, they started to become very affluent, very wealthy. Everyone was buying the shoes after that Olympics. This is really one of the first, like, would you think of shoes now buying college athletes, for example, out of high school? You know, not that that happens. No, no. Yeah, Kentucky would never do that. Um, but, uh, uh, well, that started really with them. All the way back, was that, 30s, 40s, whatever it was. The problem was that these two brothers, um, a rivalry started between them. And there's some debate about it. Some said it was um, some affairs involved. Some was uh, stealing money, one from the other, and some other sort of stuff. A lot of rumors. They got so mad at each other. They closed the company that was making them all that money. And each of them started their own shoe company, Adidas and Puma. 
So severe was this separation. They set up the plants to make shoes in the same town right across the street from each other. And it became so severe that people attached themselves because the whole town was centered around this, these shoe companies that you were either Adidas or Puma. You couldn't be both. Right? You're either Louisville or Kentucky, Chevy or Ford, right? Democrat, Republican. You're either Adidas or Puma. And they never reconciled. In fact, the two men are buried across cemeteries from each other. So that even in death, they don't have to be near each other. And it wasn't until, I think, 2000 and something, the first decade of the 2000s, that uh, workers from the two companies did a, a football match, a soccer match with each other as a sign of solidarity. It's time for us to, to put this aside. So whenever you go to get your Adidas shirt or hat or, or cleats or shoes or Puma or whatever, right? And I'm more of an Adidas guy, uh, but, but Puma is, is well. In fact, my favorite soccer team went from Puma, Puma to Adidas. And I'm sure in a few years when that contract ends, they'll go back from Adidas to Puma. You know, it's all about the money anyways, right? Well, that, that's what you have here. It's, it's affluence. They, they, they eventually separate, and from that separation comes more wealth than everything else. That's what you have going on here between Abraham and, and Lot. Um, so AI literally is not big enough for the two of them. Now, we joke about that, but think about it practically. You're in the Middle East with growing flocks, growing domesticated animals, a growing household. Remember, they're bringing with them Egyptian slaves. You remember the irony there, right? Israel will become slaves in Egypt. In this story, Abram's taking slaves from Egypt. And one of those slaves will be Hagar. We'll, we'll meet her very soon. Uh, so that causes a lot of problems. So there's not enough resources for these two men in their households. Add to that, they are sojourners, aliens in a foreign country. So they've got to play this right. Otherwise, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, you, you know that they, they, they are referenced there. Um, is it in verse 6? Uh, they're at the end of verse 7. At that time, the Canaanites and the Parasites were dwelling in the land. That's a warning to Abram and Lot. Hey, guys, you, you, better, you could better solve this problem because if you can't get along, they're going to deal with you. And so this is becoming a very real issue uh, here. Now, notice what Abram does in verse 8. Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Notice, Abram takes the initiative for peace. Can you think of an application right there? Look, here's the thing. You will never reconcile with anyone if you do not take the first step. Too often, we think it's the other person's job. Where they're the one that hurt my feelings, who cares? They're the ones that, 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 that stole from me, who cares? They're the one that said something really nasty, who cares? At some point, someone has to step up and lead to peace. Someone has to. Even if you're the victim of it, someone has to be the mature adult in the room and take steps to peace. Look, you control forgiveness. That is a one-way street. You can forgive someone who is unwilling to forgive you. You can do that. Jesus kind of did it from the cross. Reconciliation is a two-way street. But someone must start constructing the road. Abram goes and he says, look, this, this is getting out of hand. Let's make a decision here. And you'll notice that Abram is willing to lose a lot because peace 
is of greater value to him than riches. Peace is light. Riches is heavy in the Hebrew mind. And I think in the human mind it is, right? Now, they can have all the wealth in the world, but they'll be at each other's throats for the rest of their lives. Is that any way to live? No. Or he could be willing to surrender all of that just to have peace with someone he loves. Something we Americans really struggle with. We're willing to, to lose relationships and alienate people so long as we can hold on to, to what our identity is in. Abram chooses the, the opposite approach. So we get um, in verse, yeah, verse 9. Um, it's not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now notice here, Abram is the head of the clan, which means he has the legal right to tell Lot where to go. He can say a lot. This is ridiculous. I don't like the way your, your company is doing things. You're fired. Find your own land to, to, to graze on. This is my land. I control it. I'm the man. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that at all. Now, I want you to think, whenever it comes to conflict, how do you respond to conflict? I'm willing to bet it's one of maybe four ways. One is maybe you, you crawl into your bed, you hide under the covers, and you cry for four hours. Is that you? That's the flight approach, isn't it? It's, it's the... Um, leave me alone. Um, I've, I've got to work through some, 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 some sort of stuff. I don't want to deal with it. I, I, I don't want to go through that again. I, ju- I just need to, uh, 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 I need, I need to run away. I need to flight, right? The other is, is the sort of fight approach. You know, uh, are you the sort of person, do you lash out in anger and you cause a scene, right? Uh, so you, you watch too much reality TV. We talk about that Sunday morning. Do you organize a posse with those who agree with you and you essentially form a small army and you wage war against the person who, who hurts you, right? Uh, this is what millennials are doing in the workplace now because they all graduated with college with a lot of uh, student loan debt they have no intention of paying off. And so they're doing it to their bosses, right? It's what happened in the New York Times. Uh, I can't believe you. the, the editor published an uh, op-ed by a Republican, sitting Republican senator. And so all the millennials just they ganged up on, you know, got people fired. No one else watches the news? Good, good, I'm glad. Or there's a fourth option here. You, you can seek peace. You can seek peace. And, and to seek peace often requires sacrifice. Can I prove that to you? Jesus, right? Jesus brings peace. What is some of his first words to the disciples in John's gospel? Remember when he appears and the doors are locked because they're afraid? What does Jesus say to them? Peace to you. Now, that was a common greeting from Jews, shalom. But in the context... Jesus loses everything, and through losing everything, he brings peace. That's the beauty of the gospel. With sacrifice, with the shed blood of Christ, comes peace. Right? Well, that's true in general. If you want to make peace, you cannot make peace by only making demands. If you want to make peace, you've got to be willing to lose something. You have to. And Abram is willing to lose everything for the sake of his nephew. Now, notice verse 10. There's a whole lot here in verse 10. I would say, theologically, at least I would say in a biblical theology approach where you see the Bible as a whole, verse 10 is your key verse here. It says, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Saul Gomorrah. Now, on the surface, that's a boring verse, right? (laughs) It just is. But if you've been following along in Genesis... This is a loaded verse. First of all, notice the reference to eyes. What did Lot do? 
Now the choice is, you can go here, there, wherever. If you, if you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. Go wherever you want, you choose. Abram surrenders that right, gives it to Lot. What does Lot do? He immediately, what does he do? He lifts up his eyes. Does that sound familiar in the Bible, in Genesis? What's the first time we hear of looking and pleasure to the eyes? You know what it is. Genesis 3. This is the story of the fall. Serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be lifted. Your eyes will be open, and you will be wise. Genesis 3 is really about wisdom. It's Proverbs in narrative form. Um, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was delightful to the eyes. The tree desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit and ate and gave it to her husband. He ate. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened. Now Bethel sets just shy of about 3,000 feet uh, above sea level. And the image is almost as he lifts his eyes. It, it's almost as if he goes to the top of Bethel and he looks out over Canaan, the Jordan Valley, and he lifts his eyes even higher. What does he see? He sees the Jordan Valley. He says, that, that, that's where I want to go. That's where, where the business is, is. That's where wealth is, is to be made. And so we immediately see um, uh, this, this, right? So, so we're, we are to see that because he's subject to the temptation of the eyes, what is going to become of Lot? He's going to commit the same crisis as Adam and Eve. He will, won't he? Yesterday, Solomon and Gomorrah story. But what happens after that story? Things happens with his daughters, right? And what comes out of that? Seed. What's the story of Genesis 3? It's about seed, isn't it? In fact, if you keep reading in this story, we saw in chapter 12 that your offspring, singular, I will bless. Here in chapter 13, when God renews his covenant, he speaks not of offsprings, not of seeds, but of seed. What happens to Lot? He lifts his eyes, he goes into temptation, and seed comes out of that with his two daughters. It's the same story written all over again. Also notice there, in case that wasn't obvious, the Bible here, verse 10, clearly links what Lot is doing with the story of the Garden of Eden. It says it there, like the Garden of the Lord. Now, this is the first time in Genesis since chapter 3, verse 24, when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, that any garden is mentioned. This is it. So we have this big gap, and, and what you have is attempts to make a garden. Noah does it. Remember, he plants a vineyard. Abram does it. We talked about in chapter 12 when he, he goes around. He, he's in a desolate place that he's, he's going to take control of, and he, he's going to build a garden in the desolate place, what the Garden of Eden basically is. You extend the borders, what Abram was trying to do in chapter 12. Um, so here, what does Lot want to do? He sees that the garden is already there, and he wants to go plant himself there. So the writer clearly wants us to make a connection between what happens in the Garden of, of Eden and what's going to happen with Lot. It's the same story. But notice also the reference to Egypt. Like the Garden of the Lord, like Egypt, which gives us insight into what Abram was thinking going into Egypt. Now, why is Egypt like, like the garden? Because it's, it, it, you've got rivers running through it that, that means you're never going to have a drought. What does the Jordan Valley have? Rivers running through it, meaning you never have a drought. What is the Garden of Eden? What is the thing we remember most about it? Trees and rivers. There's four rivers. 
So you're never going to have this drought. You're going to have all these trees and everything else, a perfect place for, for a king. And then you'll notice in verse 10, Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, spoiler alert, God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? You're like, well, now, now the story's ruined. I guess we can just fast forward to the end and see if there's a mid-credit scene. You know? um, well, he does destroy it. But Zoar was a boundary point between the Jordan uh, Valley and Egypt in the Old Testament. This is actually used that way in Deuteronomy. Now, it's fascinating. Zoar is where Lot will flee when he runs from Sodom. So it's not an accident that Zoar is mentioned here. All this is, is, is foreshadowing. Um, but notice also that parenthetical note. This is before God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Why does Lot go to the Jordan Valley? He goes there because that is where um, that is where he sees wealth and success. But this parenthetical note tells us this is where God sees sin and destruction. What we see, it's not always what God sees. So it seems like wisdom to lots. He's got the charts to prove it. This is where all the money's going to be. Is in reality foolishness. So we're given God's perspective. Hey, reader, Lot thinks he's doing what's best for his family. Lot thinks he's doing what's best for his, his retirement plan. But the, re the reality is, it will destroy him. Why? Because he lifted his eyes up and gave in to that temptation. And looking for a garden, he will find a wilderness. Notice what happens a little bit in verse 11. We've, we've really got to move forward. Um, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from, from each other. Now, something else should pick. Should you, you, hopefully you guys, you're going to be experts in Genesis, right? Is there anything that sticks out to you there? East. east. Yes, yes. Why is that so important? In Genesis, east almost always means moving away from God. The door in the Garden of Eden was to the east. And so when they were kicked out, they went east. When Cain went to build a city, he went east. When Abram is given the promised land, he is sent west. The temple of God, Solomon's temple, the tabernacle, uh, Herod's temple, or Zerubbabel's temple, whatever you want to call it, and the future temple, told us it by, by Ezekiel. Where's the door? It's east. Why? When you leave the temple, you're leaving the presence of God. So in Genesis, going east is a, is a symbolic way of saying you're getting farther away from God's presence. Lot chooses an idol. He's leaving God's presence for a lesser God, and it will destroy him in the end. Again, it's the same story of, as, as Adam and Eve. Um, also notice he, he chose for himself. That's the definition of selfishness, the opposite of Abram. And so clearly the writer wants us to see the difference between the two men. Verse 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, um, now this, this is some preachers want to do. You've probably heard this preached before. In chapter 13, then you've got to pull up your britches because you've had too much fried chicken in 30 years of ministry. Every revival preacher... This is why I run, to be honest with you. I don't want to be one of those guys right? who, who look like they could, they could hit a dartboard with, with a button on their shirt. Anyways, um, what's the sermon you've heard preached? In chapter 13, Lot was outside the city of Sodom, but he was close enough he could benefit from it. By chapter 18, Lot is inside the city of Sodom. He's given into temptation. Now, that'll preach. 
I don't know if that's what the writer wants us to see, but it's still preach, right? <laughs> you know, so do with that whatever, whatever you want. But the main point is, is, is that Lot... They're to take him tonight. Okay. Oh, they're taking the baby. Okay. All right. We'll lift that up before we head out here. Um, Lot... Um, Lot chooses... Lot chooses for himself a land that, that he thinks he will be blessed in. But Abram learns he wants to go where God will have him. And God wants him. Lot doesn't learn the lesson of Egypt. Abram does. And so, verse 13, we get more foreshadowing there. Um, now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So, that's, that's the separation. Let's look quickly at the renewed covenant. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I'll make your offspring, notice the singular offspring, not offsprings, as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. I just want to point out there's a few things here. One, um, God, notice that God renews his promises to Abram despite Abram's mistakes. And division with Lot. God's promises are not nullified by human brokenness. That's good news. This is, we'll get this in chapter 15. God makes a promise with Abram. Abram doesn't sign the dotted line. This is a one-way contract. God puts himself under covenant with Abram. And that's important because had Abram put himself under covenant, he would have broken it. Within the chapter, he makes the covenants. Again, that's going to be very clear in chapter 15 when you, you get the severed carcasses and all that. We'll, we'll, we'll cross that bridge in a few weeks. Um, now, notice the, the promises God makes are twofold here. One, he'll have many descendants. Don't forget, he's an aging man with an aging wife. They're beyond the, the ability to have children. Secondly, they will inhabit this land. In fact, notice God says, look northward, look southward, look westward, look eastward. Now, where is the, where's eastward? It's where Lot went. What did God just tell Abram? Yeah, you've separated for a time. You need to know where Lot's going. It's going to be your land. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about Lot. It's your land too. It's going to be yours. God is reminding Abram of his promises and that it is tied to land. Um, yeah, so, so the land is strikingly too small for Abram and, his, and, Abram and Lot but it's plenty big for Abram's descendants who will be numbered beyond the sand. It's amazing. It's beautiful imagery, isn't it? It's too small for two men will perfectly fit a multitude. Beautiful. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, back in January, uh, we talked about the theme in the Bible about unity and disunity. Um, you can have unity through... Um, uh, diversity, that's the biblical approach, or uniformity, that's the human approach. That's what Babel was all about. We're doing that now. If you don't get on board, you're a bigot and we'll fire you, right? That's uniformity. Unity by uniformity never works. Unity by diversity, which is what America was supposed to be, uh, that does work. Out of many, one, that was a Christian idea. So what do you have here is you have the one, Abram's household, now two. 
And so two can't fit in the land. But the multiple will fit in the land. It's beautiful. This is why narrative is, is so phenomenal in the theological context. Well, moving on. Uh, notice the language again in verse, verse 14. I want you to see it. We, we won't, I don't want to spend forever on it. Uh, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Now, Abram is on the Mount Bethel, where Lot was. So he went to Bethel, he lifted his eyes, and he saw the Jordan Valley. Abram now lifts his eyes from Bethel, the house of God. And he sees that all the land is God's. What a difference of perspective, isn't it? This is why your peace is not subject to your circumstances. We should never fall for the greener grass syndrome. All the land is God's. And God will bless Abram right where he is, despite the famine. Isn't that fantastic to see? Look, God will open your eyes, or you can open your eyes. One will lead to brokenness and shame and guilt. The other will lead to blessings. That's the beauty of it. Ah, it's just just so good. All right, last thing. Um, Verse 18. Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Notice, Lot goes where he thinks the garden already is. Abram, we, we've made a big deal of this. Abram, as he, he tours the land, which is what a king does, when he takes possession of the land, he tours it, declares it his. Right? We did this at Jamestown and, and other places in colonial days. I declared this in, in the name of the queen or the king. Jamestown named after King King Jimmy. Uh, I believe a lot of it's the same king as King James, the Bible, right? Yes. Yeah, that's all good. There's, there's like 80 kings, you know. So get a little nervous with, with all that. Anyway, by the way, I learned, no one cares about this. Was it an Edward? No, it's not an Edward. It was another king of England. They couldn't find the body. It was in Leicester. And they, they found it several years ago under a parking lot. Google it. I came across it today. Former king of England under a parking lot. John Knox is buried under a parking lot. Uh, lot 23 outside of a church or something. Just, anyways. Greatest Scot- Scottish man in the world, but not anymore. But notice, so, so Lot goes where he thinks the Garden of Eden already is. He's going to place himself there. But God has placed Abram in the land of drought and famine. But he's going to make for himself a garden. There's two things here that prove my thesis. Two things you see in the Garden of Eden. God's presence. Notice he builds an altar to the Lord. God's presence for worship. And a tree. We, we've spent a lot of time with these trees, right? It, it's just it's a small detail, but they're very important in the story. We saw a tree in chapter twelve. Um, it was a uh, not Moria. That's that's Tolkien, Moria, something like that. Uh, there's a tree there. He plants a tree when he he builds an altar. Now where is he? In Mamre. Where does he plant himself? By the oaks of Mamre, and there he builds an altar. What is he doing? He's building the Garden of Eden in the wilderness. And you're going to see the difference between the story of Lot and the story of Abram. One is following his own desire because he lifted up his eyes. The other is going to follow the will of God, whose eyes were opened by that God. And so you will see a garden in the middle of a wilderness with Abram. 
That's the hope of the gospel, isn't it? The gospel is, Genesis 1, God bringing order out of chaos. That's our hope in a decaying society. It isn't every four years in November. It is in the cross. A tree planted that brings glory. That's the hope of the gospel. Man, that's good stuff. Any questions I can dodge? That's good stuff. All right. Uh, How about we stand and pray? We want to lift up uh, Brittany, Don's daughter, uh, who they're going to take the baby today. She's at, I think he told me, 24 to 26 weeks. They were hoping to get 10 more weeks, um, but it's not happened. They were at least 30 weeks, but she's obviously not going to make that. So um, let's, let's lift her up and...